chapter we read there, Luke chapter 21. And I would just like us to think about what uh, Jesus said in that particular passage. I suppose uh, for the Jews who had a very unstable life at this particular time, uh, that one of the things that would give them a sense of stability would have been the temple. It had been um, rebuilt after the Jews came back from Babylon, and over the centuries, um, various features were added to it, and in the recent decades, uh, prior to this time, Herod the Great had added many things to the temple because he had a very strong interest in engineering and building, and he had put together a very impressive um, building that people would look at, and they would just say when they looked at it, well, that building's going to last. And the Jews would have um, said to themselves, whatever they were living in the world, that up there in Jerusalem, there's a temple still standing, and there in, inside it, in the Holy of Holies, there's God's special throne. And that would have given them great encouragement. And no doubt at Passover time, which is the time in which we are, uh, this chapter is located, when all these pilgrims came up to Jerusalem, they would all go and visit the temple just to feast their eyes on the enormous stones, some of which were 40 feet long, and it's reckoned they weighed over 100 tons. I mean, who was going to even begin to knock such things down. And as we see among the tourists who go up to Jerusalem to see the temple, there's the disciples of Jesus. And they're very impressed by what they see. And they even the other Gospels tell us that they drew the attention of Jesus to it. And I suppose they expected him to say something of interest. Because after all, he had done certain things in the temple, hadn't he? He had, he had evicted the people that were trading there for a profit. He had chased them out of the temple. And now, of course, that showed that he valued it. And he had told the people that this temple was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. So I assume here, when they came up and spoke to Jesus about the temple, they would expect him to say something that would point to its magnificence. But instead, instead, he just said rather bluntly and very precisely, the days will come 
when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I suppose a similar kind of thing would be if the palace of Westminster disappeared overnight. Or some of these huge buildings that we see around the world, if they were just to be flattened. I mean, it must have sounded rather odd. Strange, perhaps ridiculous. But, well, we know it happened in AD 70. And this is what this chapter is about. People have a curiosity, don't they, about the future. What's going to happen? When I was first converted, there was a section in every Christian bookshop full of books on prophecy. What's going to happen next? And they all indicated what they thought would be round the corner. The problem was, at the time, I thought this was very interesting. But after 10 years, they were all wrong. Then new books came out and said what was going to happen. And again, after 10 years, all wrong. Dangerous to try and read the signs of the times. But Jesus does tell us to understand the times. And I suspect in this particular chapter, he has given us a framework into which to slot events. And we may say to ourselves, well, what is that framework? Well, here in this chapter, we have three things. Three ways to understand Life between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And after he provides these three things, he gives four or five exhortations as to how we should react to them. So as we look at the outline of the chapter, in verses 7 to 19, we have life before the destruction of of the temple. And then in verses 20 to 24, we have life at the destruction of the temple. And then from verse 24 to 28, we have life after the destruction of the temple. And that describes its whole period, doesn't it? Life before the destruction Life at the destruction and life after the destruction. There's something also else also is very important that we realize 
when we look at the passage. And that is the pronouns that Jesus uses. What pronouns does he use? Well, for the most part, he uses the second person plural. You will be there, he says. For example, in verse 8, see that you are not led astray. Who are the you there? Or if you go down to verse 13, this will be your opportunity. Who are the you? Or we go down to when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, who are the you? says in verse 28, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Who are the you? Well, it's not actually too difficult to work out who the you are because Mark, in his account of this uh, Olivet Discourse, tells us who they are. They are James and John and Peter and Andrew. They come to him and ask him the questions. And he responds to their questions. And in his response to their question about the destruction of Jerusalem and the other matters, he applies it to themselves personally. He doesn't um, have in mind as he answers the question, every disciple that's ever lived. Although some of what he says applies to them. But the people that he's actually speaking to, as he gives this outline, is these four disciples. And that's who the word you refers to as he goes down through the passage. Sometimes he refers to other people, but he always refers to them as they, and things like that. So we could enlarge the outline a bit and say about it is, from the life before the destruction of Jerusalem for these disciples, and then life at the destruction of Jerusalem for these disciples. And then life after the destruction of Jerusalem for these disciples. And of course that makes it all very personal, doesn't it? So I just want us to think about, as I said earlier, uh, these three divisions. And of course, Matthew and Mark also have a chapter each in which they refer to this discourse. And in some of them, they, as far as these divisions are concerned, they add bits that's going to happen in them. So you can read them anytime if you want to supplement what Luke says. But Luke does say one or two things that they don't say. 
So we have to bear them all in mind as we look at the passage. So in verses um, 7 to 19, life before the destruction of Jerusalem. What's it going to be like? Well, Jesus says to them there in verse 8, for example, there's going to be false messiahs. And he says to uh, these four men, see that you are not led astray. There's going to be false messiahs. Don't go after them. He warns them. What else is going to happen in life before the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, there's going to be wars and tumults. And Jesus says to them, when you hear about that, don't be terrified. For these things must first take place. They're going to happen. Indeed, there will be nation against, verse 10, there will be nations rising against nations and kingdom against kingdom. I mean, Jesus is saying this by AD 30. So the next three or four decades, there's going to be wars. He also says that during this period, there's going to be great earthquakes. And in lots of places, there's going to be famines and pestilences. Even be great signs in heaven. And I'm sure they were, well, that sounds very overwhelming. But then he says them in verses 12 down to verse 19, you're all going to get persecuted. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Then he says to them, this will be your opportunity to witness. Almost as if he was arranging it. And he tells them, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And I suppose they might have been sitting there listening, saying, is it going to get any worse? Well, he says, verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Think of James. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Would you like to have lived between AD 30 and AD 70? Well, you turn to the book of Acts. It refers to all these kind of things. 
was a big famine predicted by Agabus, which would happen throughout the entire world. Paul, when he talks, or Luke, sorry, when he describes what happened in Corinth, he points out before that happened that there was turmoil in Rome and Claudius had to evict the Jews from the city. Persecution. The book of Acts is full of persecution. It even ends with Paul's trial being repeated three times, just in order for us to get the point. These men that were sitting in front of Jesus, I mean, they're going to have a long list of court appearances before AD 70 occurred. How about earthquakes? You ever been to Pompeii? It happened in this period. There was a huge tremor in modern day Turkey way back then, which left its mark. How about signs in the heavens? A huge comet appeared that frightened the world. People were petrified. Every day that these men lived, and James only lived for about ten of the ten years, but every day that they lived, they would just say to themselves, wouldn't they? Jesus was right. He said this would happen. And it happened. The Pax Romana, the dream of the Roman Empire, didn't happen. And then there's the second feature which Jesus mentions in verses 20 to 24. Life at the destruction of Jerusalem. It was a horrible time. But he does say to these men, some of you will see it. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. AD 70 was the climax of a revolt that began in AD 66. In verse 21, Jesus changes the pronoun. He doesn't say to the four men, you flee to the mountains. Instead, he says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. The they 
Well, that's the people in general. And we're told about them in verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. It's going to be a horrific time, he says in verse 23. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. The wrath there could refer to the wrath of the Roman Empire. All we have to do, if we wish, is to read the account of Josephus about the terrible sufferings of that time. You know that the Roman armies ran out of wood in order for crucifying the prisoners. Over a million perished, according to those who tell us. There's one strange, unusual fact about our suggestion about it. And it's quite extraordinary that no Christians perished. And why didn't they perish? Because they listened to these verses. It's not surprising that Jesus wept. He wept over the city. It was an event that startled the world. That's life at the destruction. Then life after it. And Jesus mentions several things that will happen after it. One of them, he says, is there in verse 24, that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You know, that verse meant very little to most people for 19 centuries. But Jerusalem is no longer trampled by Gentiles. We are aware of something that most people of the Christian era were not aware of. That's one feature of life after the destruction of Jerusalem. What are the other features that he mentions? Be signs and sun, moon and stars. What does he mean by that? Well, that's a common way in the Bible referring to political uncertainty. Repeatedly, after this defining event, the destruction of Jerusalem, repeatedly after that, there'll be signs of political upheaval. What will that cause 
It will cause distress amongst the nations. They'll be in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. We sang about that from Psalm 93. The sea there is not the water. It's the Gentiles. It's a common way of speaking about them. There's going to be constant upheavals and disturbances. And in verse 26, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming. For the powers will be shaken. That's happening to some extent today, but it's always been happening. It's a summary of history. People just, what's going to happen next? And he tells us in verse 27, what's the next thing we're going to see? The next thing we're going to see is Jesus coming back. You'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. In verse 25 to verse 28 describes the last 2,000 years. And that tells us, of course, that the times remain the same. Understanding the times, there's nothing special about the 21st century. It's the same signs as the 1st century or any other century. But it's very interesting, isn't it? That Jesus gave us an outline. That is straightforward to understand. Life before the destruction of Jerusalem, life at the destruction, and life after the destruction. He didn't leave it there, he gave some applications. So I just want to think about them. Because all we know is that we are living in the period described in verses 25 to 27. And he gives us applications what to do. Verse 28. Now when these things begin to take take place, He says to these men, straighten up and raise your heads. That's the only time the second person pronoun is used in that particular section. Because the only part of it that they're going to see is the part at the beginning. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. In other words, they're not to cower. Why are they got to straighten up 
because he tells them their redemption is drawing near. Jesus there, of course, is talking about the redemption that's ahead of us, not the redemption that's behind us. There's coming a a wonderful release. And Paul tells us in Romans 8, the whole creation is looking forward to the unveiling of the sons of God because it's going to be the day of its redemption, it being set free. And Jesus likens these events in in Matthew and Mark, as they give an account of this passage. He likens these events to birth pangs, and out of which there's going to come something beautiful to see, a perfect world. Other people, says Jesus, are looking at all these things with fear. But he says to his disciples, there are signs that the better world is coming. So lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he says in verse 29, look at the trees. I mean, Jesus did this kind of thing quite often, didn't he? Just turned to something and pointed at it. And that meant that any time any of his disciples ever looked at it again, they would never forget what he had said about it. So he just said to them there, look at the trees. When they come out in leaf, you know the summer's already near. So therefore, when we see these things taking place, know that the kingdom of God is near. What are the leaves? The leaves are all the things he's mentioned in the chapter. They're there to see them. And as we look at them, and they've, they've all happened. For us, they've all happened, apart from the fact that Jesus hasn't come back yet. Because we've actually seen Jerusalem set free from bondage to the Gentiles. We're to look at the leaves. They're there. They're the proof that he's coming back. Jesus even pointed out that these things would be there within a generation of his, this time. This generation will not pass till all that has taken place or all that has started. So look at the leaves. But don't look at them with despair. Look at them because they're pointing to something. He also says in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And there's never been anyone 
who can say there's anything in this passage that isn't right. If we examine what they say and just look at the times that are described, they're just as he said they would be like. Whether it's the period before the destruction or the period at the destruction or the period after the destruction, he has put it down there for us. His words, and imagine Somebody saying this. I mean, what a claim to make. My words will not pass away. And then he goes on to say three other things before we close. He says them there in verse 34. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the whole earth. Many people say, don't they, that the best response to things is to drown your sorrows. And Jesus says to his disciples here in verse 34, you've got to watch out for that. The things of life. Well, we know sadly what some of them are. They just come pressing down, or as Jesus says it here, weighed down. And people have to turn to something to get some relief. And Jesus says there's one alternative. The other alternative, of course, is what Jesus says is, to look ahead to what's coming. His future return and great redemption. In verse 36, he says, stay awake at all times. What would have happened if these disciples had fallen asleep? in a spiritual sense. What would have happened if they had fallen asleep? Had a snooze? They wouldn't have seen the signs of the times. Their eyes wouldn't be on what's happening all around them. All these events that they've, Jesus described whether it's before the destruction or at the destruction or after the destruction, if they're sleeping, they won't see them. So he says to them, stay awake at all times. Then he says to them also, pray. 
pray that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. What's the secret? What's the secret of living in either the period before the destruction or the period at the destruction or the period after the destruction? It's the same secret for all of them. It is to pray. Pray that you may have strength. Because as he indicates, when we go back through all the list of things he's mentioned, false messiahs, wars and rumors of war, disasters, persecution, troubles... How can people go through it without prayer? That was true in the first century. It's true in the 21st century. We can't go through it without prayer. Praying that you may have strength. We have to call on God. To keep going. And then there's this third thing he says to stand before the Son of Man. That's the ultimate destination. What a marvelous sight that will be! Joyful in his presence. The word stand, of course, is an opposite to all the uncertainty and the chaos that's gone on before. Here they've found a place where they can actually be still. They can stand in the presence of Jesus. That would be a wonderful but solemn event. And as far as this chapter is concerned, That's the only unknown event that hasn't happened yet. All the other things, they've already started. So we're just meant to look for his coming. And a sermon on this particular Section Spurgeon said to his congregation, You are walking among shadows. Everything they could see, you are walking among shadows. Regard them as such, hug them not to your bosom. He was right, wasn't he? His people in his time, they walked among shadows, among things that are not going to last. We are walking among shadows. There's nothing stable. Even the great big temple was nothing but a shadow. And it has gone. 
So Jesus has told us. He's given us the outline of life. And we just wait for his coming. And we anticipate it with joy. Because when he comes, creation will be delivered from its bondage. Good will triumph. And life will be perfect. But until then, according to Jesus, until then, what a sad, sad world. And we should feel for it. A world composed of shadows when the substance is ahead. Shall we pray? Lord, sometimes we find your word hard to swallow. But we remember that Jesus, well, he said he was the truth. He spoke the truth. And he even said, heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will not pass away. Help us, Lord, to take his word seriously. That he has described life. He's also described the effects of sin. The awfulness of life that can be experienced by so many people. As they live in situations of war and famine, and earthquakes, natural disasters. Lord, help us to feel for the world in which we're in, and help us to anticipate the world that's yet to come. So, Lord, bless us and be with us. For your own name's sake. Amen.